No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and once again, this podcast feels entirely inappropriate given the circumstances around the world. So what I'm going to do today for the sake of uh, your mental health as well as mine, because I am not handling this so well. I'm going to play the entirety of the Brenda Hartman interview that I did, uh, both parts one and two back-to-back in one solid piece, so you have the ability to get that in one shot. Uh, She's a fantastic uh, death, dying, and grief counselor who uh, had the time and patience to sit down with me in the previous year to talk about what it's like to die, how people handle it, and uh, what we can do to better walk with death, because uh, as the podcast Uh, puts forth, uh, no matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too, and it seems a little inappropriate for me to make light of that at this time, so um, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my talk with Brenda Brenda Hartman, and hopefully you get some peace out of it. Thank you. But any questions or concerns before we dive right in no okay let's play all right so i appreciate it so uh with me today i have brenda hartman say hello hi john (laughs) how are you i'm really great excited to be here awesome well i can't thank you enough so if you would be so kind i have had the pleasure of talking with you before but what would you say you do you are a therapist correct or that is one limited facet of what you do that's one part of who i am Yes, let's see. I'm a therapist, and I typically say that how, what I do in that role is I specialize in working with people with life-threatening and life-ending diagnoses and help people walk to their death, clinically speaking, I guess. Um, I also am in the process of coming to a conclusion of my formal participation in a Bush Fellowship, And that was focused on learning from people um, about their belief systems from a variety of cultural, spiritual, and religious perspectives, what what they believe about end of life, their needs are, and what they think believe happens at the end of their life. Is there a particular point or thrust to it that you are hoping to find a particular conclusion or is it more so you want to dig into the matter and find what you can to share with the world what has been is it as simple as a binary thing or what have you found from it oh that's a great question um what i thought was going to happen and where i am are very distinctly different things uh, what started it in in my many years of working with people and helping them prepare to die what I have found is a gap is, is in the healthcare professionals' training. They're not trained to help people prepare for end of life. So I wanted, to, and, and another thing is that I saw that cultural beliefs, re- religious differences, and spiritual beliefs weren't a part of how they're trained, which is critical when somebody's facing their end of life. So not only was the conversation not happening, it wasn't being respectful of any differences. And so I wanted to go and 
learn those differences that and how to be respectful of them. And then I was hoping to articulate that in, in um, healthcare training programs and then with current healthcare professionals. So that's happening somewhat. Um, my <laughs> part of my hesitation has been since spending a lot of time interviewing amazing people and their openness about their belief systems. A couple things happened. There was one thing that everybody said to me, no matter what their belief system. Which is? They can only speak for themselves. Every, which is cool. Yeah. Every single person prefaced that way. On one hand, their individuality of the experience, does that speak to a universal nature of what they're going through, that everybody feels the subjective personal experience? Or that how do you take that? So I – so let me, let me quote, but I won't be able to do it verbatim kind okay. of quote <laughs> – a uh, minister that I interviewed, and she was absolutely amazing. She said it very eloquently. She talked about here in my form of religion that she's the minister in. This is what is said, is what is needed, and, you know, very much, um, I don't know if dogma is a negative word <laughs> to everybody or if we, whatever. If we keep it with a lowercase d instead of a capitalized <laughs> d, does that help? Oh, maybe that helps. But you know, she's like, these are the things that are supposed to happen and to say, right? You mm -hmm. know, do these certain prayers or whatever. And so, so she goes. So I, she said, I can tell you those things. And then she said, I can tell you my experiences with people that have really stretched my belief system. And then people that were very, were very um, much ease in how they walked, okay? Mm. And then she said, but she goes, I know that when I get up to preach every morning, Sunday morning, um, that every person there is going to have a different perspective and a different need, and that they're all influenced by different perspectives and their experiences. Yeah, that's been something that... I can tell intrinsically I would have concerns about over preaching or giving very strict advice on mm -hmm. the idea of me having one understanding of what I'm saying, my my own perception of my message, and then how the other person interprets it. There's something lost there. It's never going to be completely one-to-one. -one. And when I was in a previous life in mortgage banking, that was always kind of a concern that I had of is this going to be a net benefit for somebody to refinance their house? And for me, in that circumstance, I had hard numbers to look at. I had formulas where I could say, you know what? They're recouping the closing costs within this many months, so therefore it is clearly a benefit that they do this. Whereas that personal connection, that ambiguity, I'm tantalized and fascinated by the idea of something ethereal there mm -hmm. that even before getting to the idea of spirituality that there's something like if i asked you to think of an elephant that elephant doesn't exist but what i'm picturing is going to be slightly different than what you're picturing absolutely because i'm seeing a baby elephant <laughs> okay and i just i pictured a big old gray elephant okay so See, that's there you go. this is why for me part of the fascination of why i want to do this is because i like 
looking into this and it's fascinating for me to get people's perspectives on these things and you are somebody who has chosen through life circumstances and what both fate and chaotic nature of the world has brought you to this this path this career this um dharma what's i mean what's the word for not necessarily calling but what your path laid out before you is that is directly looking into the thing that everybody wants to avoid you know right that's very very true were you met at all with resistance to it when you came to this focus did people in your life have reservations about this you make it sound like that's past tense <laughs> yeah, that betrays my bias, yeah. I assume anybody who is a, a single hour older than me, I assume that they've somehow gotten things figured out and that all uncertainty is in the past. So the possibility of others having uncertainty now, like that's that shows my insecurity. I, I don't think, I think people are afraid of talking about death. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter, um, generally speaking, how old. The older a person gets, the more um, accepting, I think, because they've had to experience it more with family and friends. True. Uh, that was something that I think we first talked briefly about when we met, mm -hmm. that I am still in the phase of my life where we, I've shifted from all of my friends getting married and having parties, now they're having kids. Eventually, I'll enter that phase where it's more common for parents and then family and spouses start passing away, and it becomes a real prominent issue and I hadn't ever really considered that it was kind of a glass shattering moment when a friend of mine presented that to me I hadn't considered that whole shift I've also spoken with family who are simply uh, older than I am and they've said you know it's uh, it's not as fun or novel as a concept for us because we're a little closer to it so it's surprising for me to find that there are people I'm, I guess I don't know why I'm, I'm already trying to contradict you because that just seems like I'm just spouting off about my own experiences. I'm just, I'm fascinated by how even as they progress towards it, what could be a more accepting nature of it, there are still people who really don't, I don't know, like warding it off with the evil eye. Does that make any sense at all? You know, I had a conversation with a woman this week. Maybe it was last week. I don't do linear time very well. <laughs> and she is consciously walking toward her death mm. and she's pretty young and um, one of the things she said to me was um, you know when we were talking about this in theory Brenda me getting ready to die <laughs> that was easier than now that it's super close yeah and so I've had the gift of all of these years of doing this walk with people and hearing them and listening to them and, um, you know, all ages, all ages of people and a lot of young people and watching how they change and their insights and what they're learning. So I don't know. I guess I really think the more that we promote this conversation just like you're doing, that we can circle back to when death wasn't so scary. Yeah. That... <laughs> How far back do you want to look for that? What is your... In my mind, I start to think back like, well, I mean, 
early 1900s, late 1800s? I do, or do you think more back to like a genetic root of who we are and how quickly we used to? No, I'm thinking about when we were more of an agrarian society. Okay. Because death was a part of everyday life. Living when when the vast majority of people lived on farms, mm-hmm. right? Animals died. Animals were slaughtered. Children died. We talked about that before. And mm-hmm. how not that people are like, yay, the cow is dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got more kids on the way. We'll be fine. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's not that. It's not that there wasn't grief. There wasn't this that medicalization that you know we've got this false expectation that if you go and see a physician they're going to take care of you and they're going to fix you looking through the information that's available on your website which is by the way www.healingthroughlife.com there we go i uh, thank you very much i didn't want to forget that before the end um <laughs> thank you so looking through there particularly there was an article that um, you referenced throwing clay on a pottery wheel mm-hmm. that the physician works the outside and you help work the inside that that medicalization and that was something that really really hooked me when we first talked that the idea of oh right there's this huge gap that although there's the medicalization of the process of dying death itself is still not a solved problem and it may never be able to be solved that might be inherently misunderstanding the problem but the idea that doctors are just dealing with the outside not in a dismissive sense, but they just, that's what they're there to fix. Are you finding in your experience that there's, you can see here how much I pause when I'm gathering. <laughs> Do you find that there's much in your experience to speak to that gap? Have doctors at all, have there been changes in the medical profession in the last 20 years that they're able to address that more? Or are they, are the branches kind of deviating the further time goes? Oh, they're acknowledging now. There was a very important book that was written by Atul Gwande, a physician. It's called Being Mortal. Okay. And he talked about never being trained. And he talked about the importance of how, well, how do we talk to people and how do we, we as physicians, noting that I'm not a physician, but in that light, talk with people when medical treatment is no longer beneficial. And that is an area that they are not trained in. And so it's very easy for them to come up with another medical treatment. And what what I have witnessed and what's very sad is both the individual patient and their loved ones have this misconception out of hope and fear that if we do this next treatment, whatever it is, that it's going to bring the patient back to this wonderful level of life that has a good quality to it. And the medical team knows that's not true, but they don't know how to say that. And so I've been in the position many times when people say, what's happening to me? I'm the one that tells them you're dying. Wow. And they're like, but wait a minute, they've got another treatment for it. You know, and so I spend a lot of time using my hands as, you know, showing them what's going up and what's going down. And, you know, all those people out there listening are wondering what I'm doing with my hands as they're moving around. It's an amazing light show. Folks can't see it at home, but there's shadow puppets, and it's an amazing thing. (laughs) All of my clients will go, yep, she talks with her hands all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You're in good company then. So are you really, you're having to be the one 
to tell people? I have many times. To be, are you the actual breaker of the news or are many, you somebody? I have been, you bet I have. Not and, just drilling the concept home, but like, did they not tell you what stage four means? <laughs> like, Well, so I got a very funny story about that. So when I was diagnosed, um, so th- anyway, so after the major surgery and blah, 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 all of that kind of craziness. We're coming back to the blah, blah, blah later we on, by can. the way. So what I was told, because I, I was out unconscious, there was, I think there was eight or ten people that had been in the family waiting room for the, I don't know, 10, 12 hours of surgery or whatever it was. Anyway, so... One of my first presentations that I was asked to do was to go and talk to a bunch of oncology nurses about the f- impact of cancer on a family. So what I did is I went and I interviewed all those people, and I asked them what they heard, what the oncologist surgeon said. And my sister had the best line that when the oncologist said she has stage four, she thought four out of ten, not bad. Oh, God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And people heard such diverse things because he, um, he, the oncologist, was quoting research that I had read uh, that I, I had a 5% chance of living 24 months and would not survive 24 months. And, um, and I knew that uh, going into that surgery. And so he talked about 24 months or two years you know he's yeah. so some people thought well she'll have a rough couple of months and then it'll be good there were other people that she's not going to live two months instead of 24 months I mean it was just this huge thing and my sister thinking four out of ten's not bad yikes I mean we when people are talking or hearing about very serious things we all stop listening at different points because we're trying to think what it what was just said to me. Yeah, I can point to specific examples in my own life as well where the doctor just kind of casually drops a piece of information and your mind struggles to wrap around it and suddenly you're off in the weeds trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, that can't be, I'm sorry, did they just, are we talking about, and, you know, the conversation is paused. Are you there? Are, can you... <laughs> Well, they keep talking, Mm -hmm. and they're like, we told you that. So it's like, yeah, but wait a minute. I mean, that's one of the pieces, too. I've participated in this ovarian cancer organization that's just fabulous, MOCA, for anybody that is interested to support us. They do this program that's called Survivors Teaching Students. And so I helped with this the first 15 years until I got my fellowship. But for every third-year medical student in their gynecologic rotation— there's a panel of three of us that tell our stories. And it's it's an interesting thing, you know, because we supp- need to help them understand first that the prediction of ovarian cancer is um, you're going to die. <laughs> that is just what the prediction is in the, reading the statistics. And so to have three of us sitting in front of them uh, is kind of shocking to them. Basically, and in their world, if they're seeing this, it's a death. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to die, right? Right. And so um, I have now long since arced when I, when I say to them I was diagnosed in 1988. I used to ask, you know, how old were you in 1988? And then there was the year. It was like, well, that was the year we were born. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and so I don't tell them anything about my treatment anymore because it's changed so dramatically over the years. But what I talk to them about how important it is for them when they're giving this kind of information, difficult information, to sit down and look the person in their eye and touch that person. Really, just the physical contact. Right. And I tell them, and it's what, usually when I'm saying this to them, I'm crying. And I always feel good when I leave, and they've all cried <laughs> because this is real. Yeah. It's a life-changing moment in that it's okay to stop and take a breath and wait for them to get caught up with you. Yeah, it's – I don't want to make anybody experience more pain, but just to know that people are sympathetic and empathetic and experiencing yeah. that moment and not just making it into a transactional thing. I right. mean, there's certainly times in life that call for the benefit of um, – who said it that everybody needs a little bit of oblivion that just – Sometimes you need to just blunt things a little bit, but mm. to share in the experience and to not deny somebody a bit of humanity. I can't imagine going through it. I haven't had a personal scare with it yet, um, although I suppose there's quibbles with that that I could <laughs> that I could make. I'm I'm fine. I'm perfectly healthy, and uh, people in my life are very healthy. But um, it's it's something that when uh, so past guest, Kevin, that you were, uh, you mentioned you'd listen to some, he put forth the idea that he thinks everything that we do as people is guided by the notion that we're dying or we could die. And I had never really considered, similar to the glass-breaking moment of I hadn't considered that I'm going to enter a phase where everybody in my life starts dying, that I had always thought of it since, you know, my high school biology classes that reproduction would have been the driving force for what we do, that our coding and our deep wiring would be pushed by this need, this instinctive uh, subconscious lizard brain thing of just whatever it is, mate and move on. You've got a mate to move on. And I hadn't considered that it's the notion that we are finite, that, that we might have an intrinsic element there. I can try to wrap my head conceptually around it. It's difficult and it becomes real when I try to not visualize people in my life dying, but try to understand that not only will others die, but I will die too. And the <laughs> I don't know if I'm really chasing a point here at this point that it's that's just that's where I struggle to have the rubber meet the road. You know that I can I can try to wrap my head around it, but to really see it in your face, I suppose, you know, to to look it directly in the eye is a completely different beast. Has it been? I'm going down one branch there. What I'd like to do is get back to the notion of. How has there been pushback against the idea of what it is that you do? You mentioned that it wasn't just in the past, that there may still be people in your present life or in the future that find something objectionable about what you do. Mm. What do you think they find objectionable? Or is that off That's base? kind of a strong word, but hopefully. Or the individual that I, they might be uncomfortable with it. Well, I think people have a hard time understanding what I do that their first reaction is oh that'd be so sad that'd be so hard in fact I was just talking with um, I have a spiritual group that I work with and 
were woman, she works in a church and does a lot of funerals, right? And she goes and visits, and she and I do a lot of similar things. And so we were talking about self-care. Because I was saying that, that I had asked her if this is true for her, because in for me, in my life right now, I'm in this place where I am walking with a number of people that are leaving. That it's kind of like there's waves. So sometimes there's a bunch, and sometimes there's not many. And when there's a bunch, it's it's... It's heavy. Um, I can feel my energy field being really pulled. Mm. And um, so she told me what she was doing to take care of herself. And she goes, well, what do you do to take care of yourself? And my my honest reaction to her, I guess, and to me is, you know, I don't think death is bad. I think of death as healing. I have this you know, everybody gets their own belief system, and, and that's just made up of your own experiences, which is why it changes over time. Sure. And so for me, having walked and seen the beauty of people as they're leaving you know, and trying to make sense of why is this 19-year-old in front of me dying or why is this, you know, 30-year-old that has two little children at home. Why is this person dying? You know, I was just trying to make sense of why does this, why is this 80-year-old dying and not that one? You know, I mean, I don't know, and I don't know why I'm alive and why other people, and I didn't die. I, yeah. You know, but I'll remind you, you don't know why you're alive either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Thinking too much about it really throws me off, too. There's just as likely there is nothing, that there is something, and for me to have been here and be this person as I'm gesturing. With the family that you have, right? I mean, yeah. it's really trippy. It's like, why? Okay, there's a lot of whys. Yeah. But I see, I believe that death is healing and that from the moment that we're born, I'll give us day one of birth because you've held that brand new baby and they mm -hmm. glow, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like all soul. Yeah, they're very new. And they glow. Yeah. And they can't hold their head up. And then we'd stop glowing quite so much. And so then like, I believe that the next day we start on a healing path. And when we've completed our healing path and we're totally healed, we leave our physical vessel. Okay. And so when I'm with people, I talk with them about what is healing. What's healing for them? And part of that is reflecting on, for myself, what I did when I was dying and what I what I did that was healing for me, I you know I don't know, but it stops me from being in panic. It's like this is healing because on one whatever a person's belief system is, I believe people have a soul or a spirit or something because something happens when we go from that moment of saying a person's alive. To a person's dead, something shifts. There is some change. There, there is, is a change. Yeah. Something happens. There's a lot of stories and a lot of feelings and a lot of whatever. Um, but in that separation of whatever that is, when the last exhalation occurs, as people die on the exhale, and I want to come back to that. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Please continue. Um, but when that happens. It's like, who am I to judge that, that timing? I believe it's between that person's soul and their divine or their God or their Buddha or their Allah or whatever is sacred to them. That there is just like the timing of your daughter. As much as you and your wife thought you were going to be in charge of that, 
she, you know, there was something else going on. And so, and, and so whatever that is. You know, oddly enough, or coincidentally enough, I was reflecting this morning on how I've been able to get her out of the house for daycare because she is two and a half. So she's staunchly in the, no, walk away. Like that's what they teach her at school is just to put a hand and walk away. (laughs) So, okay. How do I convince this little person to put on her shoes and come with me to the car? And I'm finding it works much better if I don't force, if I don't Mm -hmm. lay down ultimatums or this is the way it will be tough. Yes, certainly there are times for the nuclear option where I don't like to do that, but I find much more peace, both for her and for me, to redirect the energy, Mm -hmm. um, to basically not distract, but, you know, we need to be done with this. We talked about this. It's right. We're ready. Do you want to go put on your shoes? No. Would you like to put on your socks? Maybe. Okay. Okay. Which of these socks would you like to put on? Left or right? Like just kind of what I think of as like Kung Fu or karate where it's like, okay, you just take the energy and just direct it back towards where we need to go of just, that's how I've been trying to live my life to be more empathetically attuned to the room, to be, I guess you could say it's trying to be in the moment or just being aware of others. I've tried to be that for a very long time, but particularly having a little person in my life has really, uh, really cemented that. And I would think that that similar notion of dealing with death and the dying process would be kindred, that if you try to force something, if you try to make somebody have some understanding of what's going to happen, it's going to be, you might get results, but it might be difficult. But to, to approach that scenario... Certainly there would be understanding if there's feelings of panic or mm-hmm. uh, inescapable inevitableness that, that feels, uh, you know, crushing or trapping. But I just feel so lucky to be a lot – like there's this whole checklist of qualifiers that my, my, my personal therapist uh, – reminds me, you don't have to go through those every time you want to make any kind of statement that I don't have to necessarily think of like, I've been born, period, that I survived, period, that I'm born in the latter half of the 20th century in a developed nation where my parents were successful, that I have been healthy my whole life, that like all of these things, like I am grateful for all of these to be at the point that I'm at now how do I live my life and how do I accept my own inevitable demise whenever it may occur another element of it that i have no control over that lack of control has to become a measure of or a capacity through which i can live my daily life that yeah i'll have bad days like anybody else and i'll get frustrated and you know lose my temper but there's always the reminder of yeah all this is a gift all of this there's no guarantee on any of this and so just that it's here, I'm trying to have that mindset as much as I can on a daily basis. And what it kind of brings me back to is what you'd mentioned in passing about 20 minutes ago, that linear time doesn't feel as strict. Mm-hmm. That 
granted, I'm not on a clock anymore, typically, <laughs> but the idea of I have lost track of a couple of things where I've, did I do that already? Or have I, does this just feel so natural to what I'm doing that I'm, I'm going to start doing that and that's already happened? Is that something that you say kind of in jest for the linear time? Or is that something that you, that you believe truly that it's not, could you tell me about what you meant by that? I know I just threw a lot of information at you. Linear time is hard for me. Um, I think we go in and I, I think, whoops, totally sorry. No fine. Um, I think when a person has had an intimate experience with death, that their experience with time changes. And uh, that there's, I, I tend to think about, Linear time is being like a piece of elastic that some moments stretch very, very long and other moments go so fast. Okay? I very much agree. And so it, time is not the same. So thinking about every minute is the same. And, you know, something you were saying about, you know, I, that you're grateful to be alive um, – one of the things that happens for cancer patients typically is when they hear you have cancer, the, a couple of things happen in our heads typically. Even though they're, the docs are still talking, you're thinking, number one, I'm going to die. And number two is um, maybe they've got the wrong chart. <laughs> There's got to be right? a mistake. It yeah. might not be me. Yeah. How could you know what's what's wrong? There's something wrong with this picture, okay? Because I've only, out of all my years of doing this and the thousands of people I've spoken to, um, only had one person that said to me she knew she was going to have cancer because every person in her family had cancer on both sides of her family. Wow. And she just knew it was a matter of time, and that was really hard. Wow. Um, but everybody else, you know, she's like, I never expected to have cancer. And so my image of what happens is that, and this is part of that glass-shattering bubble popping that you're talking about, is yeah. that you're walking along in life and you think, and you know things happen to people, like people get sick and have car accidents and people die and there's horrendous things that happen, but not to me. Right. We have this protection of bu this protective bubble for some reason that we don't even think about. Yeah, what I think of in uh, terms of television or, or book or anything narrative, plot armor. You're the main character. Right. Nothing can happen to you. That's right. That's what made Psycho so jarring was that main character, 40 yeah. minutes in, what do we do? Like, yeah. that's that's basic to who we are is telling a story. You're the main continuing piece. How do people deal with that jarring? So I, I think about you're walking in life, and, and were you at the old Saints Stadium where they had the Velcro wall? Yes. And remember the person would put the suit on and they'd jump up on the Velcro wall? Well, so if that was, you're walking in life, and that's your death, and you're Velcroed to your death, and all you can think about is your death. And then gradually what happens, and I talk to cancer patients about this all the time, is like, oh, you know what? Here's You didn't wake up dead today, Right. Yeah. Because you're so focused on your death, then you then you begin to realize you start peeling yourself off the Velcro wall of death and go, I'm in life, and I can see my death. Okay. All right? So yeah. I can reflect off my death. And so part of it is how far away is it? You're kind of doing the same thing. 
Yeah. Okay. And what that does for many people, not all, but many people, is it makes life very valuable, which is what your friend was talking about. Yeah. Kevin, I think, if I remember his name, yep. is that he's like, it's that reflection of death. I, what's different with people that have had transplant or heart attacks or cancer, anything that has the potential to be life-threatening or even, you know, like some of the people that survived the 35W bridge, mm. it's like I could have died, right? Mm-hmm. It's that the reflection is, is now I see my death. And that, that, that plate of armor that you're talking about, it's gone and you cannot ever get it back. Yeah, I'm no longer invincible. That, that safety, that reality... Yep. I am morbidly fascinated by when Hawaii had the the false alarm for the incoming missile oh, and yeah. some of the fallout. Some of the stories from that have been uh, amazing to hear different reactions of, you know, family that just they sent out texts to everybody in their family that they could and just accepted it or people that panicked and, you know, grabbed doors and tried to cover themselves in their bathtub or somebody that had said I'm in Hawaii on vacation on the beach. What what, what more do I want? I'm going to, this is it? All right, this is it. Like, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's just, it's noodle baker stuff. Like, I just, I'm fascinated by it. Are you, do patients come to you? Are you, do you seek them out? What typically is the dynamic there? Are doctors referring to you? Or is it a personal I, I, um, are you a superhero? I've never marketed. I've, um, they put the bat symbol in the sky and you just go to where you're needed. Hopefully it's a heart. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the death symbol, but that seemed, that seemed wrong. Like a scythe. Yeah. A good heart. That would be good. That'd be good. So you just, you, so I know lots of, uh, oncology clinics and, um, refer to me and nurses refer to me. And I think, a lot of people that have had a serious illness, because there's now many people that I've worked with that should be dead that aren't. Yeah. Which is so cool. You yeah. know, it's just like we're a big group of people. And so then when one of their friends gets diagnosed, there's like, oh, go talk to Brenda. She's weird, but go talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> She'll ask you about death, and then you'll, you know, because I, I do. It's one of the first things I do is I, I let's talk about what do you need to do to prepare to die? Yeah. Let's do that. And then we, that neutralizes that anxiety. Yeah. The, are you talking about the practicality of it, of just what do we need to do to prepare? Does that give it well, a... Well, everybody has a very different list. Sure. Right? But that's a question I ask yeah. very early on in meeting people is because, you know, it's just like, what if I die? It's like, okay, so well, let's let's explore that. What if you die? What... And I'll typically say, if you're going to die tomorrow or if you're going to die in a week, what is it that you need to finish? What would you not want your loved ones to have to deal with? Because as we know, unfinished business is what causes ghosts. That's why. <laughs> that's, that's always the joke about unfinished business is why people stay. That Yes. Does, does that help people wrap their head around it? Does that give yeah, them well, some... Yeah, well, and I also qualify that... You know, when people uh, talk about my bucket list, mm-hmm. right? And there was that goofy movie, Bucket List, and, you know, they were dying and they were, you know, these were people with a lot of money. Actually, that is, a bucket list is about living. 
Yeah. These are the things I want to explore, and I'm very clear about that. Nobody that's approaching their death says, I want to go to Paris for lunch. Nobody says that. Yeah, what do people want to do commonly? Well, I've heard I need to clean my closets to... Typically, people have like four or five things on their list, and they're not very big. You know, let me do the financial stuff because they're wanting to be respectful of their loved ones, right, so that the that crazy legal stuff can be sidestepped if they've taken care of that. Um, you know, though, it another one, like a lot of people want to say goodbye to people. To, and it's like, well, how do we resolve issues? How do you say goodbye? I talked to them about, you know, here's the four things that are really helpful to say in exchange with each other, um, if not out loud, at least in your heart, so they uh, that person can die well, right? Take care of regrets. Yeah. Regrets, unfinished business, um, being angry, is is uh, creates a very unpleasant ending, right? Good Lord, yeah. And so if you can address those things and help them, so like people are, I want to write letters, I want to say my goodbyes, I'm not going to be there for my daughter's wedding, I want to get something for her that she can have for her wedding. You know, it's just like, okay, let's do that stuff. Yeah. Let's do those things, and then once that list is addressed it's like okay that's great or even just the notation of i want this person to have this thing i want person to have that thing it's like okay so now you can focus a hundred percent of your energy on living yeah it does come up time and again on this podcast that people are not prepared for any of the paperwork that needs to be done or just just literally just have a note in your phone that just says in the event of my untimely passing just basic steps yeah. of just the the most basic qualifications but people don't even want to go that far they don't want to have those conversations and it's been every person that I've talked to about death and dying they've had that same feedback of if you just plan a little bit it's not wishing death upon you or anybody else it's just making it so much easier for other people when having to deal with this because we just similar to what you said about the medicalization of death that there's it's it's a phantom zone of business that you know i i don't i have yet to have the opportunity to really talk to anybody in the funeral business uh you know business side of the funeral industry but i can't imagine having to thread the needle of being respectful to the person who is in deep mourning and dealing with this massive disruption to the world as they know it and then asking them well, how much do you have to spend on this when typically people are, the majority of Americans are, you know, paycheck to paycheck? And, yeah, it's... I, You know, I've talked to people about if they, especially about the funeral, because you're talking about when this is what I really work with is all over. Mm-hmm. You know, I call that the messy middle, Yeah, what I do. Um, yeah, it is, it, not to interrupt, but the idea that this is between somebody getting bad news from a doctor or some kind of ominous meeting yeah. and then the actual death itself yeah you're the person dealing with that nebulous area of yeah. what does this mean yeah and how do i walk it yeah and that, with all the people around you and all of their reactions because boy there that's a whole nother layer too but um what i will say about the funeral piece is just to say one thing because if there's nothing said 
the, the loved one spent an enormous amount of time, what would that person like or not like or whatever. But if you say one thing, then they know you didn't say anything else, so you're, you're putting it in our hands because it's what makes us feel comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things it's that it's those things are easy for me to name because I have walked this path so many times with people. Yeah. Um, and it's so, you know, I can say, you know, in that uh, that messy middle part, it's like, you know, is being kept clean, for example, is that an important thing to you? And I've had people say, are you kidding? That's just critically. Of course, I want to have clean sheets. I want to be kept clean. I've had other people say, you know what? Who cares? I'm dying. What difference does it make? You know? Yeah, that. I mean. You and I talked a little bit about that, and that just really blew my mind. Of what? Once you're dead and gone, what do you have? No, I'm not dis- talking about. It. I'm talking about before you die. Oh, you're right. You're right. This is my. Okay. Again. See, you're doing what? When I was interviewing people, and I'd say, "What do you believe about death?" People wanted to start telling me about their funeral rites. Yeah. Now we're much more comfortable because then it's all done. It's this messy middle that I work in, and we're really uncomfortable with, and that's true. With the medical community, and that's true for a, a, a lot of people. It's like, how do you walk with somebody that they know that they're going to die? We don't know when. We don't know how their body's going to break down, but they're not dead yet. And, you know, this is the role of the caregiver. They're yeah. in this place, and everybody thinks, including the patient, I wish I would just die. It'd be a whole lot easier if this was done because this is so, it's nebulous, it's hard, it's difficult. Like, some days I'm much more lucid and able to participate, and other days I'm not. And my body works sometimes, but not always. And Yeah, it's. I think of it in a way as like magic eye posters where you have to relax your eye. You can't look directly at it and like, why am I not seeing the sailboats? <laughs> Take a step back, let your eyes do something they don't normally do, and get a secondary look at it. It's... When I find myself stepping back and trying to look at it through that lens, I find that I, in my in my own head, that I move away from the idea of um, hospitals and wires and tubes, and I, I find myself really wishing for, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if this is binding to have it on a podcast or what, but uh, yeah, um, I should actually ask about that. Um, the idea of a peaceful, uh, you know, <laughs> not sterile hospital environment, you yeah. know, whether it's home or it's somewhere quiet and mm-hmm. the idea of not wanting to, yeah, I don't think of a bucket list as like jumping out of a plane and stuff. I would think of it as, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm repeating the stuff you say back just because I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Um, when you deal with these lists or you know the notion of what do you want to to accomplish before the end is forgiveness something people have to work on oh yeah how do you help people with that how is forgiveness an impasse well you know what's interesting is a lot of things that initially what a person becomes aware of is many of the maybe grudges or things they've held on to for a long time immediately evaporate yeah. Because they seem so small in comparison. It's like, why did I waste my time and energy on those things? Yeah. Right? Any particular ones that keep coming back up of like, you know, everybody's worried about these dishes. Stop doing all that. Like, is there any particular? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah a lot of that stuff. Just um, trivial physical stuff. I mean, and stuff. that happens. 
I know that <laughs> I have this. So then, you know, there's this whole other category of people that are like myself that are alive that were supposed to be dead that prepared to die and didn't die. And so that changes life too, that in a, in a wonderful way, but also that doesn't fit so well in our dominant culture because I, it's um, marketing doesn't work so well. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't really care about what's the uh, right kind of underwear I should be wearing on. I just feel happy I have some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. This is another pair of pants inside your pants. <laughs> it's right. it's what I think of going to Las Vegas that I just, I am not enticed by gambling whatsoever. So like walking through a casino floor with blinking lights, I just think like, oh, it's what is for like Superman to walk around in a gunfight. Like I'm, I'm fine. This is, it's yeah. just not of interest. That, yeah. Well, and the same thing for me in terms of, of going away of you know getting drunk or doing drugs and just going away it's just like i want i i believe so here's another one of brenda's goofy beliefs but i believe that we're all here for the amount of time that we need to be here in our vessel interesting and so having watched that uh as so if if i can be settled in that i have the amount of time, like let's say with my kids, that I have the amount of time that I'm going to need to do what I, if you will, came here to do and what I can offer them for their lives and where they go with should they choose the mission of having kids, right? Um, and so that means I really need to show up hmm. when I'm with them mm -hmm. because what regrets people have is they look back and they weren't really present with people. Yeah. Because they were thinking about the past or the future, but when they were in that moment, they weren't really there. Yeah. And so then there becomes this awareness of the preciousness of time. Yeah, no amount of money ever bought another second at time, right? Right. You just can't. There's no going back. And so when you're here, let's be here. Yeah. And that's... And not just the trite notion of phones and looking at screens, but just genuinely being in moments. And that's, again, just not to hold my kiddo up as a you know talisman against all evil in the world, but like that's it's just been a learning lesson for me of just slow down and enjoy the little, like, this is going to sound so cornball, but like <laughs> when the weather has been nice, I, we will sleep with the windows open. And I sleep closer to the window, and I can feel the breeze I'm just far enough away that I can just feel the breeze just touch my nose and my eyes when I'm sleeping and go absolutely no farther. It just stops right there. It doesn't make it to my ears. It's just right to my nose, and it's the most amazing, strange little feeling of it's so personal and private, I do kind of regret sharing it a little bit just mm -hmm. because it's such a weird little moment, but those little things of I you know when I'm worrying about what I'm going to do the next day or all the things I need to get done those kinds of things give me peace of just that's just noise man that's not yes I need to focus on getting those things done but worrying about them now at night is not going to get them done and yes anxiety and worry have causes and they have a place in the world you know without 
some level of spidey sense, we would all just be walking around touching the stove too much and not being mindful. Like, we need some parameters in place to feel guarded against bad things happening, but beyond a practical standpoint, letting go of that worry is difficult for me. But I actually found it really freeing to recently hear, to tie back into what you said, that um, I forget the hard numbers exactly, but the notion that we really only live in, like, 10 to 15 percent of our memories that the things that we can remember and recall and then the the things on top of that that are worth remembering and recalling important moments conversations we had with people beneficial information that it's like 10 percent of our life experience it's some small fraction of a number and that by and large you're not going to remember this and that's it might sound nihilistic to say that which is, again, something I've been talking with my own therapist about of just how do I deal with anxiety without just saying screw it all and just being nihilistic. But it's freeing to know you don't have to make this a perfect memory. You don't have to make this into, you know, the right way to answer a question or the right response to a stimuli. You know, that just be in the moment. You're probably not going to remember it. If, like, this is going to, if you're going to be a goldfish and you're going to forget this in five minutes, you can be happy. You know, you can in- try to enjoy the moment because if there's no consequence to it, why not at least enjoy it? You know, if it's... You know, I, I think um, being in the moment means you get to have all your feelings and all your experiences. Yeah. So it's not just about being happy. It's about being what you are. So when you are happy, you know that you are happy. And your daughter is an amazing teacher because at two and a half, she doesn't know how not to be in the moment. She just <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. And that's the beauty of um, her, where her brain is developed at this moment. Yeah. And so, and you can, that's such a fun age because you can, you can watch her mind churning and, and figuring things out. And then, you know, there's so many other concepts that she doesn't even worry you know she doesn't know time she's not worried about taxes or the environment yet she doesn't know time so she doesn't worry about what do i do tomorrow or what am i going to do in five minutes it's all just now it's just she lives in now and so she's such you know that's such a gift and that's the other i have this remarkable father who's 88 and just an amazing human being and listening to him I mean his sometimes his life is busier than mine and all the bands and choirs and golfing and all the stuff that he does (laughs) but he has a way of being present because he doesn't have that same you know he's a retired teacher and you know, working with the students, and he's a musician, and all that, you know, what he was trying to do um, when I was growing up, and now to listen to him, and, you know, even though he's he's on a way to another concert, that and whatever, that during the day, it's like, oh, you know, I mowed the lawn, I weeded for a while, I took the dog for a walk, he's being present, and so that's a you know, when we have these bookends of people around us, mm. it's helpful to remind us that in in the midsection of life, we are working really hard to do food, clothing, shelter. Yeah. 
And so once we can get that to hum enough, then we can really, because, you know, I love my job. I have an exceptional job because I get to be with people and I get to love them and really have an intimate experience with them. Um, yet when I'm diagnosed again, I'm not going to be working. Okay. Do you think of that in terms of Do you think of that in terms of an inevitability knowing that you've had very aggressive cancer in the past? Is it a matter of you medically understand the likelihood of coming back or just the fact that like well every something takes everybody that uh, How about D all of the above and I dying from cancer is a nice death. Really? Okay, there's a lot of people that are freaking out hearing that. Yeah, right now. it's a lot of like, hey, no. <laughs> but um, you get to say goodbye. You get to know where you are, and if you're if you're um, conscious about it, you get to decide how much treatment you want and how much you don't want. Yeah. And so you get to be in charge in a different way. If you're, you know, I'm not afraid to die. I, you know, after my near-death experiences. I'm not afraid of dying. Um, I, I, you know, it's not like I want to die tomorrow, but I could die tomorrow and be okay with my life. I, there's things I would like to do, but that's living, mm -hmm. right? And so if it's my time to be dead tomorrow, I could be okay with that because what we were just talking about earlier is living where you are and saying the things that you want to say and um, you know, my, my children have had a very unique experience in this world because their whole lifetime they've heard me talk about my death. And, you know, it's just a common part of our conversation that we talk about death. So that's not a scary topic in our family. Um, other people might think we're weird. <laughs> That, of course, is true. Um, <laughs> but it's helpful because, you know, they know what I want and they know what's going to happen. They don't wonder, you know, what kind of funeral does mom want? They don't wonder about that. They know that in my office there's a manila envelope that holds when I die. And in my office at home is a file. And when I die, you know, take this out and read this and honestly that adds another element to why you should plan those things out because that just sounds so cool to have like in case of event break glass of you right. know i've got a secret envelope full of instructions of like you could make a scavenger hunt <laughs> do whatever you want like it, it's but it, it's not even a secret envelope no, because no, they know. No. I mean, we'll be driving down the road and some song will come on and I'm like, hey, this would be a great song for my funeral. Mm -hmm. What's this one called? Because usually they know the names of the current title or something like that. So that's on a scrap of paper. And it's like, let's date this because otherwise you're going to be there for three hours playing all the songs <laughs> mom wants to be played. You she know? went through a real ACDC phase <laughs> in the 90s right. and then... Jimmy flashback to Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then the Beatles, you got to have the Beatles. And you know, I mean, there's just... Do you find planning uh, funerals for people? Is there a lot of, once people get over the hurdle of this is for me, that do, do people embrace that at all or is it... 
Well, you know, I've had a, a number of people now do what I've helped them create kind of pre-funeral funerals that they've had. Really? That um, I could tell you a couple examples of that. One is this wonderful woman that she was, she was dying and she was going to, she needed to stop her treatment because she understood that the effectiveness of her treatment was outweighed by all of the negative side effects and how hard it was making her quality of life. Yeah, there's limited, a, right? a real it's, fine balance. Yeah, of... and it, when it flips, it flips, and the and the person knows because they can feel it, right? Yeah. And so she had come to me. She was a grandma, and she came to me, and she was, had been. She needed my help to tell her family that she was going to stop treatment because their response was, "Don't give up." Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. What did you say that nobody ever has a real cowardly? Nobody, like, lost the battle with, with cancer. cancer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. That's in the paper. I saw that again on Sunday. They lost their battle with cancer. It makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. We all die losers. That's, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, that's good. Yeah. You know, so give up now, whatever. So um, anyway, so she and I talked about it and how to present that. And then um, we talked about how can she say her goodbyes and and then one of the things she wanted to do was she she knew that at funerals people said all the stuff and it's like why can't i be there for those things and i yes. want to say stuff yes right oh, i would never say this to her face but she's the most wonderful but say it to her face exactly <laughs> do it you know? now and she had things she wanted to say to them yeah. right and so so we did a couple of things we um we met with different developmental age groups okay you know, so like we met with the grade school kids so we could talk about this at their developmental level. And then we did the high school, the teenagers, and then we did the adult children. And then we we spoke with her husband, and that was hard for him. Um, and then we met as a whole group so we could talk about the ritual or ceremony that she wanted to have, right? And... So actually, it was four generations because there was this seven-month-old baby that was there, too. It was very fun. And so when they showed up to my office, they brought their priest, which I got to tell you, my heart almost jumped out of my head because I'm like, oh, my God, we're creating a ritual, and what is he going to (laughs) think? So anyway, so we all sat. You know, there's 19 of us in this room. Man. And, yeah, it's a big family. And so anyway, so what we talked about, because they already had, you know, like so many people, fire pits in their backyard. And so we talked about collecting the sticks, you know, how the trees give us offering all the time before you mow the lawn. you got to mm. pick those offerings up. It's mm-hmm. like, well, let's have, let's have a fire. Let's have all those sticks. And we talked about how to create a ceremony, a, a sacred fire, right? And... Um, do those those steps and then the, once it's a sacred fire everybody could come up and put a stick on the fire and tell grandma mom great grandma or whom whatever their relationship was right wife a story a thank you a remembrance and then she could talk to them right and and the rule was everybody else was going to be quiet because this was sacred time one person speaking at a time yeah and that there would be endless sticks but everybody had to have a chance to go around once, and then they could, you know, they could keep doing. It. And then Grandma, Mom, Wife could say her response to each one of these until everything was spoken, right? And then we also created 
another um, thing that I had talked about that something similar we had done when my, my mother died was we created a, a cloth that we put um, my mom and dad's handprints in the center and then everybody else's handprints were around theirs hmm. right so it was a cloth and then we wrapped her body in that so we were all holding oh. her right well that's really nice and so i told them about that and so what they did because they had a lot of little kids and so every they got those plaster of paris things like those plates that you could do a handprint mm -hmm. and so everybody got to do a handprint so they'd always be able to put their hand in grandma's hand oh right that's so nice. And then they were going to go home. So we had this conversation about Grandma's dying, and Grandma wants to say goodbye, and they're going to have this, this their their ceremony. Yeah. That's just private for just their family, and we talked about all of that, right? So as as they're leaving, the um, priest waited till the very end, and he asked if he could talk oh, to me. I was me. going to ask. I was going to ask. And I'm how like, did the priest... oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And so I had described the importance of ceremony and the three parts of ceremony and how you create a sacred space, a space, sacred fire, and then how you close it so that they could have hot dogs before, they create it to be a sacred fire, then it's, they can do their ceremony, and then they close it, and they could roast marshmallows. Mm. And it's not sacrilege, mm. right? And, you know, and I was nervous saying that because I'm, like, seriously in his terrain, except... It's how I live my life. It's how I think about in my studies of, I've done a lot of studying on faith and religions <laughs> and cultures and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and uh, he said to me, so he said, I've never heard ceremony described the way that you describe it. Because I talked about it in regards to going into church and how you how I always describe this is, you know, you can run, people that are going to an organized religion, let's say it's a church as opposed to a mosque, or right? Mm -hmm. That in the sanctuary, using that terminology, you can screw around and run around in the church, right? In the sanctuary, you can run, right? Mm -hmm. But once the music starts, everything changes. True. Now, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the beginning, the opening to, this is now creating sacred space. And you do the ritual, and then there's the music, and it closes that sacred space, and now you can run around again. Is it? Do you think that there is an element of that that is born of the shared agreement about it? That it, it basically does it take more than one person? Then I think that that's based on ancient, ancient historical ceremony sure that that's that if you think about humankind that their first ceremonies were sitting around a fire mm -hmm. right small communities that were working together to survive mm -hmm. and they were honoring the stars and the earth and were living very sacredly mm. and spiritually and this is the fire they cooked on this is the fire that they did things but then they shifted it so when they were doing their sacred work there's something that had to, there's offerings that are put into the fire. Then it's sacred, and there's offerings to say thank you to the spirit world. Um, 
So what I want to say is what he he asked me about that, and he said he'd never heard it defined so clearly, even when he was in seminary and all the years that he's preached. And he asked me if he could use that that week and talk about that in his sermon. You're kidding me. And I, 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 my face probably looked just like yours. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, said, yes, <laughs> of course you can. For a monthly fee of five ninety nine. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is amazing. Right, but that's part of when we get, we, we lose, tr- I have really worked hard to understand the essence of where do the belief systems come from. Yeah, so your study of a number of different faiths and how humanity intersects with faith, do you feel, well, what have you found? What have, what have been your findings that are worth mm-hmm. noting and sharing in your opinion? So I have this interesting image of um, if, if, if this table represents whatever this world is <laughs> that we're in, that we think that this is a table. Yeah. Even though the quantum physicists will tell us that it's moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then up here is the other side, whatever that means, right? Yeah. And that... The next... Uh, the next phase or something like that. Sure. When we're not in this physical form anymore. Yep. So I was at a drive through at the bank, you know, and you put your money in the thing and it goes up in the tube yeah and i went "Ah, that's just like life okay so all of these different tubes are all these different organized religions and here's the path and you know you stand and, and you can be inside this tube and here's we've got how we're doing the answers how this is you know and they're all going to the same place they're all coming from the same place um, so there's people that are 100% in the tubes. I think about many of the people that I know, particularly women, that I would say are half in and half out of the tube hmm. because they love the ritual. Catholicism has beautiful rituals and different ways of uh, belief that are helpful to people in prayer, but they don't respect women. At least that's how a lot of women feel. And so that part of it, they're not inside the tube, but this part, right? Yeah. And then I see that there's people that aren't inside any tube. And so for me, what I have looked for is what are common threads amongst all tubes? Sure. That's what resonates with me. And is it possible that there is a tube there that that person just can't see it yet, that they haven't found whatever it is that helps them understand how to go from here to there. I think that we all have our individual path. Okay. And it's just whether or not I need somebody else to outline it for me. And I think it's helpful to some people to have it be outlined. Um, And for other people, it's not. That is something I wrestle with, with, um, well, getting back to linear time, too, that the choices that we make lead us to where we are that it's not that it's and we kind of talked about this the last time we got together too the idea that you can throw the dice and however the dice roll that's how they're going to land and that there is a final finality of that moment where up oh, snake eyes like mm. it could have been anything up until the moment that it was snake eyes and then from then on out that moment was always snake eyes so when you look at your life you can see this path looking back and i can see all of the things along the way that led me to here but looking out forward, I can't see what those choices are, and that 
for me right now, having a clear path is not about physical guide markers of do this and then do this and then do this and you'll have some satisfaction here. It's it's about kind of feeling my way through it in that Kung Fu sense that I talked about of I'm working on that because when we talked about um, uh, being in the moment, anxiety and dread, or not anxiety, anxiety, happiness and being present and how my daughter helps me deal with that and be, you know, in these peaceful moments, that 15% of memories, my particular swing towards happiness there is because I have what I would wager is a, and anybody listening to this for the past 15 episodes would certainly scream it now, uh, a problem with anxiety and uh, uh, depression and uh, a number of different things that I'm working on. But that I'm looking to balance the scale in the other direction as I'm moving my hands here, that that's how I use those moments to help me understand that, that I'm shifting the entire spectrum and that I can't know that happiness without that sadness. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've come to time and again on this podcast, that there's the reminder of this too shall pass. The great moments, the times that I love, they're fleeting. I see, you know, we've been in this house for like seven years now. My wife and I have been together for like 15 years that doesn't seem possible and yet all these good things sometimes you're going to be sad all these sad things yeah you're going it's going to be better sometimes it's you have to work to choose that though it's not a relinquishment of responsibility to the universe but it's me trying to find um the ability to trust my compass that if I can work towards what I believe is general happiness, I know that I'm not working toward um, constant bliss. You know, that mm. that would be short-sighted. You know, that would get so boring. And sometimes you got to feel down. And last night, so uh, every time at bedtime, my daughter gets... Uh, cup of milk and she picks out two books and we read two books uh, the three of us and uh go to bed but then <laughs> last couple of nights she's picked out the giving tree mm-hmm. and i cannot get through that book without breaking down i like by the end of the book it's always me asking my wife how did i do that time did i keep it together okay because i just go to pieces i don't know what it is but every time she grabs that book i just think oh i'm not ready for this oh here we go like i know i'm gonna be sad but it's it's not a bad feeling. It's not that I don't want to be sad. It's that, oh, I'm going to go through a thing and I'm going to feel better on the other side. But like, here we go. I'm going to get punched in the face and I'll be fine later. But like, <laughs> it's just like, it is going to happen. There will be sadness. And without that sadness, I don't have the joy of sitting there reading her a book. Like, I, that, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of, all of these things are kind of hitting on the same cord for me that is helping me understand where I'm at with these things in my life Mm. when can I say something about that please when um so I'm just going to say this and 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 we can pick it apart should you choose to um (laughs) here we go when they sent me back into my body after my second near-death experience they told me two things 
they whispered, I, the only way to describe it is that they whispered two things in, in my ear as I was coming back into my body. And um, one was to have all of your feelings, that they're your guide. Okay? And so I spent, I think about that a lot. And in our, in our psychologically structured culture that you and I live in, okay? Because we live with people that don't have, have the same outlook that you were just describing. Part of the damage that I think that psychology has done is that there is good, a definition of good feelings and bad feelings. Uh. And you're working really hard to challenge that. that. Like, you know, there's like anger's bad and sadness is bad and happiness is good and joy is good and so we get into this dualistic that I should be right in in this thing and so their comment of have all of them they're your guide so let's take anger for a second it's not that having anger is a bad thing anger is a really important emotion because it tells us something's wrong here Mm -hmm. what's going on what could be bad is how I act it out. Yes. Okay? Yeah. But if I'm listening to their encouragement, they're your guide. They're guiding me. Yeah. That I have that feeling. So and that's part of having that self-awareness, being mindful, being present. It's like my body is interacting in a feeling state. And you know this from your baby when she was first born. As her feelings started coming online, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, because like she didn't have fear until like eight or nine months, which is why stranger anxiety comes in then. Yes, it does. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so as her feelings came online, they started to guide her in her interactions. So that's, if we think about it from that point of view, that I'm having feelings and I have anxiety, so from a physiological point of view, if, I, if you or I or anybody was wired up when we are experiencing anxiety or ex- anxiety about something like I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or something. Sure. Or I'm wired up and I'm excited about and I'm eight and what's my Christmas present going to be that's under the tree tomorrow? My body response is the exact same thing. Oh, I never considered that. Okay, so because it's both the unknown and that's that shaky, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's what I'm thinking that shifts it. Yeah, yeah, what tips it one way or the other. Exactly. So if you're letting them guide you, is that anxiety is helping me or depression is helping me. And I we could talk a lot about depression and how... That is, a. if we talked about that, is I'm going deep and internal to understand some things that I don't know yet. So um, some of the Native peoples that I studied with, they talked about that going internal is going into the lower world where there's seeds of the unknown, things that I either haven't resolved yet or I haven't learned yet. And so I need to go down deep internally right which is a like remember when you were in fourth grade and you um, 
we're germinating seeds. It has to be a dark, damp place. That's called a womb. Yeah. Okay, which is also feminine. And so in our very patriarchal society, that means it must be bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the lesson that I got very early on, that uh, feeling, a lot of feelings, and expressing those feelings is somehow... Not right. Yeah, don't do that. Unless yeah. they're happy. Think happy today. You see that yellow smiley face too? Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we can, so for me, in my learning and trying to understand what happened to me and the information I receive being on the other side, um, my sidestep in this moment is knowing there's people going, oh, rolling their eyes going, huh, that's not possible. But whatever, I could talk about some of the things that I've learned in my interviews and talking with lots of people, but anyway. Whatever you'd like to share, consider this just, your time because that's a, a fascinating. Yeah, that, well, we could always talk about that. Um, but I think feelings are really critical. We are a feeling entity, um, biosphere bag or whatever phrase we want to use. Our body feels. So if we stop thinking that that's bad. <laughs> yeah. That's a really and that they're that it's helpful to me. It's well and your body responds to that too that I've been feeling some stress lately that I know is manifesting in my back and mm -hmm. I, my posture is terrible. It's always been a, a thing for me, but I can feel how much it's really pinned back there. Your body responds to it. It's just how much I want to listen to it as far and, as and what so, it does. Yes, what's teasing. And so what you said earlier about your daughter and helping her get out the door because she's feeling. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're helping her navigate her feelings. You're validating when she says no because it's like I'm really having such a good time right now. Why would I want to change? It's like that's right. you know. It's like I'm eating a banana split. Why don't I eat too? Mm -hmm. Well, because you will get sick. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the you learning know? process. That's right. And so it's like, okay. And then you help her see, but you could also enjoy this too. Yeah. And you're going to go see your friends that you really enjoy playing with, too. Mm -hmm. And she just doesn't have the cognitive structure to hold those two things at once. Uh, so you're helping her move from one thing to the next. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Meanwhile, validating that she has this emotional experience because they're guiding her. Yeah, that's what I don't want to do is tell her it's wrong to feel any certain way. And yeah. that's something I've worked on on myself is that so long as my logic is sound enough <laughs> and that I'm rational, it... I would not do well to say that it's wrong to feel a certain way, you know, that it, that the more in tune and in touch with my sense of self and my, you know, my understanding of who I am, that my feelings aren't bad. They're just a representation of how I'm feeling. Yeah. And, and that's... And why? Yeah. To be curious. Mm -hmm. Isn't this interesting? Is, so, are you comfortable sharing anything from your... your trip to the other side the mention of the word they is sure intriguing to say the least so so i got to i what i think is very fortunate for me is i had two near-death experiences because uh, the first time when i was on the ceiling looking down at them working on me i was freaked out I was like freaked out. It's like get back in that body. Oh really? <laughs> Seriously? Know? It's like oh, it's like <gasps> you know. <laughs> yes. Oh no! Did it feel like floating away? Like well, no, it didn't feel like floating away. It was just like I knew I wasn't in my body. Oh. 
you know, and it was weird. I could see them and it's just like, no, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. Um, so, and there's some things that happened that, um, it's hard for my family. So I'm not going to talk about some of the things, right? Totally fine. Because if they should be uh, so kind to listen to what you and I are having a conversation about, I, it would make them very uncomfortable. So I'm not going to. So Certainly let's just go back into my body. So, yep. but the second time, um, and that, at that point, my body was really breaking down and I was actively dying and I was yeah. well under 90 pounds and I couldn't walk and things weren't good. Yeah. Um, and I ended up back in the emergency room, um, cause my heart was stopping and it was racing. How are we doing? I'm doing just fine. I want to be mindful of your own time. Are you feeling okay? I have no idea what time it is. It is 3.02. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Um, so let's see if I can um and you can line up those ums. <laughs> <laughs> Take the time sequence out. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So, you were, you were so very the second sick. time I was in the hospital, they took me to the hospital and, and um, so I was in the emergency room. And same thing happened. I was out of my body, and I was watching them work on me. And I was so relieved to be out of pain because my body was in so much pain. At at that time, they never gave any pain medication. So I was just, oh, I was in so much pain. And I was so relieved to not be in pain. It was just so great. And I could see them working on me. And so I, you know, I I was there before, so it's like, oh, here I am, right? I'm out. And I can only describe it in physical terms because it's the only terminology we have. Yeah, I've Uh tried to describe hallucinogens and the feeling of spirituality after the fact, and it never, nothing will ever... And especially in English. English is a very flat language. It is so non-spiritual. It's just crazy. Yeah. or it's, it's not it's as not romantic crazy as it enough. could be. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. So anyway, so I would say that what I did is I turned and I looked up. And that's when it was kind of like that whoosh. And that and then I was I was on the other side. And I could there was um there was a line where there's that line where if you cross that line, you cannot come back. Okay, oh, wow. so I was on this side of the line. It was that perfect temperature people talk about. It was absolutely perfect. And there was music. It was just that wonderful music. I couldn't describe it for you, but it was like everything. And I understood everything. Okay, there was that immediate understanding. And on the other side of the line, they were all there. And so how... We could talk about this for a long time and about what I've experienced in talking to other people and reading about others with near-death experiences. And I believe that people use words to describe who's there, who's sacred to them, who's really important to them. And for me, I didn't need human form faces. No. There were were souls there. okay? Okay. And it was like... In this physical world, seeing the people in the tor- Mormon tabernacle choir when they're in the risers and they just go and they go and they go and they've got the robes on, it was like that. And Alex Gray, do you know Alex Gray? No. 
Uh, so should we meet again, I will bring you some Alex Gray paintings because he's painted this. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, so it's like I see all these people, all of these beings, souls, and there was those that came forward to talk to me, and I could see where I belonged there. It was like oh, wow. my spot um, was like on a dimmer switch, and it was just dimmed down. And like, I knew oh. that if I stayed, That's and that was part of my argument, I did not want to come back. Um, so I was arguing with them, I don't want to come back. I, you know, I was like, I don't want to go back in that body. It's so broken. It's so painful. It's so, so hard. Um, and they don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now yeah. I get it, but they don't understand. Yeah. And it's like, I see where I belong. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there was a lot of different um, conversations that happened, a lot of things they showed me and explained to me to help me decide to come back. Really? Wow. Um, why do you think you were able to do that and others don't? That you were able to be... aware of it when so many people don't seem to have that opportunity to consciously experience something like that. Do you think there's a particular reason or is it just... I think a lot of people have that experience. There's a lot of people that are afraid to talk about it. I didn't talk about it for a long time because um, I really I really felt no one would believe me. I mean, people... When I, part of my coming back, part of my resistance was I knew that I would have a spontaneous remission because that was the only way for me to continue living. As part of a deal, basically, I'll go back, but... I <laughs> no, it wasn't part of the deal. It was the only way, it's that's just part of what I knew would have to happen because my body was dying. Oh, wow. So okay. I'm just knowing that, look, the only way for this equipment to keep going is if there's a complete and total remission, and lo and behold, you step back into the body, well, that's both because and therefore there is a complete and total remission. And I also knew that nobody would believe me. So <clears throat> how similar to a uh, friend and previous guest Brian talked about this was not an immediate thing that he came to. You didn't just wake up from the bed screaming, I've seen something like years down the line or did this take you yeah you know so there was a couple other parts about that but um actually when i realized that so for months afterwards i continued on a death trip and i and i came back in and i i told my doc i'm stopping my treatment because i stopped my treatment so i'm scared to say that out loud publicly because I don't want people to think if they stop their treatment, they'll have a spontaneous remission. Right. That's in no way advocating for that or some kind of at, statement at, of support. That's just where your personal journey took yeah, you. Yeah, where it took me. And um, and I don't know why that happened. Sure. Okay? I don't know why. You know, any kind of human knowing that if you do this, A, you will get that, B, and you'll be alive. It's just like, I no, I no. Um, but I, so I, after that, I had stopped my treatment 
And I started to get better because remember, I did have this broken down body Mm -hmm. that had to get better, right? Mm -hmm. And so I continued on a death trip. And when I left the hospital, um, my doc said to me, I want to see you in at maximum six weeks, having stopped my treatment. And he, um, so I'm like, okay, you know, like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So I continued on my death trek, you know, saying goodbye to people, taking the last road trip with my sister. And, you know, I was able to eat, I was gaining weight, I was feeling stronger. I felt like it was um, because I had stopped my treatment. Hmm. And, you know, I never thought that I was better because nobody ever thought, I mean, everybody was, and you're dying and we know you'll die from this. There was never any gray ever. Hmm. And which is a whole weird thing to have everybody look at you and think you're going to be dead soon. Hmm. Um, which is why I can talk to people. <laughs> it's like, I get that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the look that people give you like, oh my God. Yeah. It's like that, the death look, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so it was probably like three and a half months later, I um, went back into the oncologist, right? My hair had started to grow back in. And um, <laughs> so the person at the desk, whom I knew, I mean, I knew all these people because they saw me all the time, right? And I her eyes did that cartoon thing, you know, it's like, <laughs> rrr, rrr, you know, in and out and in and out, you know? <laughs> and what I learned later is that her job was to find people in the obituaries so they could send cards. And they were convinced they'd missed me. Oh, my gosh. And they felt terrible. Oh, my that gosh. That they hadn't sent a card. And they, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, anyway, I mean, yeah. So, what happened, so meanwhile, we were talking about when did I think I had a near-death experience. So, what happened is... My oncologist said he wanted to do surgery because what he was expecting is that my body would be filled with cancer again, and he wanted to see if he could get a hold of it. Cause he... And so it's like, okay, you know, whatever. I'm feeling better. You know, I'm stronger. And um, so did that, and he couldn't find any cancer. And he just kept opening me farther and farther. My zipper just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger oh, and longer. Um, and... So when I came to, which we had a very different conversation than we had before, you know, he just said, the only reason I can't find cancer and the only reason you're alive is because of what you did. What we did, we should, you should have died many times, right? Oh, man. And I didn't understand that. And so then let's fast forward about four years, maybe five years, because I... My goal was never to be a therapist. Okay, so, but I was working with clients by then, and you know, I'd done a lot of work around being alive and not being dead, which is also another thing to, you know, you're planning on being dead and then you're not dead. Yeah, really. <laughs> Suddenly you're back on the system, you've got to pay your taxes, and <laughs> yes, milk to. gone bad. Um, and I'm sitting with a client who had a near-death experience, was flatline. He was, both times happened to me, I was in the hospital, but neither time did anybody know that's what was happening to me, okay? Mm-hmm. He was flatline. They knew he had died, and they were bringing him back. And so he's telling me about his experience, 
and about he used words similar to and he could feel it okay yeah and it's like i'm going to the simultaneous it's like that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my in God. my head yeah you know and of course in, in graduate school i had read all the research on near death and i've always been interested in death and all these different cultures i mean this part was not new to me right um and so then I went back and reread all that stuff, and it's like, yes, yes, yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, so it wasn't until this client, unbeknownst to him, he didn't, hopefully he didn't know I was having this whole other <laughs> reaction going on while he's telling me about his experience. You're sitting back in a chair with the notepad freaking out, just like, mm-hmm, don't yeah. let him see you screaming. Mm-hmm, That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, so, God, yeah, Brenda, so, this is amazing. I just... I can't thank you enough for sharing all this. Um, we have enough here, honestly. If it's okay with you, I'd like to split this into two episodes because it actually kind of dovetails nicely with the first half of us talking about who you are and what you do. And the second half, we really dive into some intense personal experiences. Is that okay with you if I sure. cut it? Do whatever you got to do. Do like a two-week release? Sure. <laughs> I want to ask I, – I want to wrap up here, but I want to ask two questions before I do so. Well, three really. One is, why do you think that there seems to be a zeitgeist right now about death and dying and our inevitable demise that we're not talking about it? And then the fo- the, the unrelated follow-up question is, what's next for you? So first of all, you and I have talked off mic about this a little bit, but why do you think that this is something that Personally, I'm experiencing a real Bader-Meinhof phenomenon where now that I'm doing this, I'm seeing this everywhere. Yeah. And I'm getting a feeling it's not just me. I think it is something that's happening. Do you have anything that you... I think that's true. I I do. I, I liken it to, you know, when someone gets a, a Nobel Prize, let's say for some scientific study. And then what comes out afterwards is, well, somebody in this part of the world, in another part of the world, that there was three or four different people coming across that same discovery. Yeah. So at the same time, right? And then there's this argument about who really discovered it first kind of thing, okay? But more so that it's at the... That there's a collective unconsciousness almost? Yeah, that's... kind of that whole hundredth monkey theory. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Right? And so that it's coming in that we've collectively we've raised our consciousness to a place where we're ready to bring something in and turn things over, right? And yeah. that there's some lead players. And I think about that as, uh, well, doesn't matter what my image is. <laughs> <laughs> I see in pictures from my near-death experiences that that's just how I am. Anyway, so yes, I think that's the same thing, is that, because I've been working in this terrain for a long time, and now it's everybody's, not everybody, but it certainly is at this turning over point. Okay. And I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm happy that um, you're doing this. I think this is really, really important. Thank you, and likewise, you are, I feel like I'm sitting here at the at the feet of the master, you know, somebody that's I'm way outclassed and outgunned here, but I want to ask the right questions, but I'm just terrified of like, oh, but no, that's not going to be, I'm just making references to horror movies now. You know, I need to (laughs) make sure that I'm being as reverent and respectful. So I I really, A, just think you're doing the proverbial Lord's work. You just, what you're doing is a benevolence for all of humanity. I'm trying to imitate that in my own broken down, you know, 
carnival-esque way to ask these questions if for nobody else, the benefit that I've gotten out of it. And if anybody, the fact that there are people in the UK and Australia listening to this, first of all, hello, thank you. And it amazes me that anybody wants to hear this and hear these questions because I can feel people pull back from this. So I think there's good being done here. I don't want to get a, you know, toot my own horn and, you know, I get so high and mighty. I'm just a kid in the kid i'm 35 person in a basement you know and then my daughter can hear this 20 years from now you know but so you mentioned the fellowship is reaching a conclusion what lies in the future for you or are you not thinking in those terms i have two things that i'm working on that are um two threads that are coming from the fellowship because of Bush Fellowship is an interesting form of a grant because it's not so much about an endpoint. It's more about a launching pad that after it's formally finished that more things would come, like a mushroom mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. So one is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Theater for Public Policy. I have not. Oh, they're very fun. So Tane Danger, it's that's his theater. And... Um, so I presented with Dr. Ann McIntosh last year with Ontane's theater. And he, he, so let me tell you the structure. It's very, very fun. He, so I'll just say it in terms of what Ann and I did. We were on stage with Tane, and Tane was asking us very serious questions about end of life. And Ann being an ER doc, right, she's dealing with people that don't have these conversations and are in life-threatening positions and she's trying to help family members make decisions right so she would really like everybody to have their paperwork done and and attached to their bodies <laughs> yeah jeez, oh, yeah <laughs> i'm just kidding but, but tie your mittens to your jacket and, <laughs> that's right you know okay. um and i'm talking about death is healing and teens asking us questions and there's the audience and on stage with us is improv artists and so then after like 30 35 minutes the three of us get off stage, and the improv artists then do stuff with what we did. Absolutely hilarious. Yeah. And then Ann and I go back on stage, and Tane's out in the audience asking questions. People get to ask questions of us, and you know now they're comfortable talking about death, and they have very specific questions. And so they're so then they ask, and and you can find this stuff on their website, um, our all of their shows, but you can find. And so it was wonderful. So it was lat. 2018 Memorial Day that night, Monday night, it was a sold-out show, and they had to turn people away. That's amazing. Oh, and this is at uh, Bryant Lake Bowl? Is yes, that right? absolutely. So the three of us have been talking about taking the show on the road oh, you're and kidding. taking it to different communities and having somebody from the community and then having simulta- having also having part of the show be small group conversations that we can interface back and forth and also with the improv artists, because Anne and I have lots of content of information, but, you know, having some humor and levity. So that's one thing that we're working hard to. So if somebody would like us to come to their location, please find us. The you Theater know? for Public Policy. Yep. Call Tane Danger. Okay. And um, what's the other thing that is growing out of the mushroom? I did uh, what I referred to as a family conversation talking about preparing for end of life and this what I refer to as the messy middle Hmm. with 15 people and I 
am going to put that on my website to be able to come and do that, like in churches or small communities or with other families, um, to help facilitate the conversation. Wow. I can think of, well, gee, my own family that I'd like to have that happen with, so I will. <laughs> sure. You know, because that would be a great... I'm very comfortable, and in, in, in people don't have to worry about protecting me, ah. so they can push against me, sure. right? Because they don't have to even like me. They can say, hey, listen, lady. <laughs> that's exactly right. Coming in here telling me who I can leave this to. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Well, very cool. This has been absolutely, for me, absolutely enthralling. I'm sure other people will find it as interesting. This has been so much fun for me, and I've gotten a lot and I will continue to dig into this as I go through and edit all of this and figure out like huh I really wasn't asking the right question there and I'm going to go back and get more and more out of it so thank you so much is there anything you would want to let people know just to put it out there to the universe one your website again is www.healingthroughlifethrough is spelled correctly dot com okay perfect thank you and then uh Anything that you'd like to just put out there, whether it's, you know, work on the zipper merge or read this book or... Oh, I wish they would work on the zipper merge. <laughs> Goodness sakes. Yep. <laughs> we're not good at that here. No, we're not. I, I Be gentle. Be gentle. Be living your life. I like that.